James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its works so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed like a wind, blown and tossed by the wind, that no man should not think he will re- that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all he does. Beautiful portion, challenging portion. So, Father, I pray that you'd help me as I preach to preach the truth. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to um, deliver the message that you've given me with grace that would encourage every single person here this morning. Amen. As I've been preparing, it's wonderful to see that James is written to people that are in trouble. <laughs> It's written to a a bunch of guys that were in trouble. It's written to Jewish Christians that had been scattered after the persecution in the church in Jerusalem, and they were all over the Mediterranean. They were discouraged. They had their heads down. There had been great revival in Jerusalem. We know that the the, the book of Acts says 3,000 people were saved on one day. It's wonderful. And there was a great sense of God was going to do something. And now they've been disappointed because all these believers have been scattered all across the Mediterranean basin and they were in little groups. They were uh, disconnected from each other. They were discouraged and their heads were down, all right? And James writes to these people. And it's very interesting. He writes to the 12 tribes and he just says to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations. Uh, the other translations talk about scattered by the dispersion. And we're going to look, just as an introduction, just look at James a little bit as a, as a man and uh, what's interesting about James is that he was a kind of connector. He was one who was conciliatory. He wanted to keep the roots of the Jewish faith. And at the same time, he was trying to connect with the new thing that God was doing. And um, just remember that this letter is pre-Paul, all right? Uh, this letter was written between A.D. 40 and A.D. 48. So it's one of the early letters. In fact, it could have been one of the first letters written to the church, Paul has not yet come back from Arabia with his exceedingly great revelation. He hasn't come back yet, all right? He hasn't even gone yet. And so there's a sense that we are hearing here one of the first letters that was written to the church, okay? And um, when we're reading it, just keep bear that in mind. This is a letter written like embryonic thoughts of the Christian faith that um, James is beginning to to uh, communicate. It's written to a people that are in trouble. It's also written to a backslidden people. It's written to people that are respectable, but they are backsliders. Why do we know that? Well, if you read the rest of the book, you'll see that James is quite concerned. and He says, actually, you, you're discriminating against the poor. That's not a sign that you're in a good place with God when you discriminate against the poor. He talks a lot about your tongue and keeping your tongue in control and speaking well of people. If we're not able to control our tongues, that's, that's a sign that perhaps things are not good in our walk with God. Would you agree with that? So Paul, um, James, <laughs> James is writing this letter to scattered people, discouraged people, and actually backslidden people, respectable people, upright people, but backslidden nonetheless. And he's writing to encourage them. Okay? Uh, historically, James has been a controversial book, and I really want to encourage you to download RT's messages, three of them, one on joy, one on wisdom, and one on faith. And he alluded to some of these things as he was preaching. But James is controversial in some senses because, because it's quite Jewish. The book is quite Jewish, and I've already tried to say why that is. It's because James is, is this connector. He's Jewish, and he's trying to connect to the new thing that God is doing, but he's keeping his historical roots uh, as, a, as a Jew, and he's quite conservative. He's a conservative man. And um, the other reason why it's, just, it, it's controversial is because initially 
scholars weren't sure who wrote James because there were five Jameses written, uh, mentioned in the New Testament. But most people would agree now that this James that is spoken of in this book, who wrote this book, was the half-brother of Jesus. And we know that also from Galatians chapter 2. And what is interesting about James is James is the, undeniably is the most powerful figure in the early, Jewish, in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, Peter, James, and John are mentioned, and James seems to be the most prominent. He seems to be the most important of those three in the church of, in Jerusalem. And we don't know why that is. There are some things that um, point to that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5, when uh, Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus, he says that um, Jesus first appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to 500 at one time, and then he makes mention, he says, and he appeared to James. So James is mentioned there as one of the people that met the resurrected Christ after, after, he, was, um, after he was resurrected. And James hadn't always believed in Jesus. He, he hadn't been a believer. But perhaps that was a, ca- a major point of a catalyst in his conversion was, was meeting Jesus face to face after he was uh, raised from the dead. Also, Acts 12, verse 7, when Peter is miraculously, miraculously released from prison, uh, the scripture says there, it says, uh, Peter says, go and tell these things to James and the other brothers. James is mentioned by name again there. You know the famous council in Jerusalem, I'm sure, Acts 15. Um, it's James who dominates the meeting. Uh, both Barnabas and Paul and uh, Barnabas and Paul and Peter, they come and say what God has been saying to them and what they've experienced, what had happened to them. And James is the one that listens. He takes all the information in. He pronounces a, a, a judgment, and people listen to him. He's, he's kind of, he is the main man in the church in Jerusalem. So when he begins this letter, he simply doesn't have to say anything more about himself other than James, a servant of God, and it's like everyone would have known who he was. Yeah, so he doesn't, you see some of Paul's letters, he spends more time introducing himself and saying, I'm an apostle called by God. And James didn't have to do that because they would have all known who he was. He was a man of standing in the early, in the early church in Jerusalem. Okay? So he introduces himself quite simply. I've said already, James was a conservative man. He was a, he was a man who wanted to be, uh, keep a continuity with the Jewish tradition. And, uh, that's why it's not, surprising either that he says to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations. He, he was con- constantly referencing where he'd come from. Um, another example of the kind of Jewish bias of this letter, if you like, is if you go to James chapter 2 in verse 21, James refers to Abraham and he says, Abraham, our father. Abraham, our, our father. Now that's a particular way of saying it. Paul would never have said that. Paul would have said, Abraham, our father in the flesh. Or Abraham, our father in the faith. Yeah? Paul is always concerned with the gospel and what, what God had done through Jesus. And uh, you can see the Jewishness of, of, of the letter simply in that little statement where, where James just says, Abraham, our father. He's looking at it from, from a more uh, Jewish perspective. And we know also that the early Christians really trusted James as a, as a spokesman on, on their behalf. Um, and so this is the James that we are meeting as we, as we consider this letter. The other thing I just wanted to say is that we know from Galatians, obviously, that James had a problem. He had some concerns with what Paul brought back from Arabia and started to preach. And the major concern that uh, James had, along with many other Jewish believers, was how do the Jews fit in? If this new gospel, this wonderful gospel, is for all that believe, Jew and Gentile alike, well then how... Are we to evan- how, how were they to evangelize Gentiles? How were they to exte- accept Gentiles? What status would Gentiles have in the early church? That was a main concern. And you see, if you've read Galatians, and uh, remember we studied a couple of years ago, there was this, um, this big argument that Paul had with Peter and with James. And he said there seemed to be pillars in the church, but they were discriminating, uh, discriminating against the Gentiles. And he, he calls them to account, and he says, you hypocrites, how can you do that? You sit one day with, with Jews and uh, won't have anything to do with the Gentiles, and he, he challenges them. So, so Paul really challenges these, these, these uh, early Jewish believers, and that's really what the book of Galatians is about, as of, of us in the gospel living free from the law, living free from all aspects of the law. 
Could they be part, the Gentiles? Could the Gentiles be part of the church without being circumcised, for example? It's a major theme. Now, retrospectively, we know that Paul was right, don't we? It's obvious, and we, we, are, we are privileged to have a whole scripture to consider when we think about these things. What I find interesting about James is that he's a man that had very strong convictions. He's this traditionalist in, 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 a, in a sense. He's quite conservative. But what makes him open to change? Because he did change his views. And for me, that's, that's a, a powerful, powerful thing. Um, James is shown to be a man with a warm heart. He's shown to be a man with a big heart. He's shown to be a man who wanted to be conciliatory. He wanted to bring people together. He was concerned that the church would hold together. And you know, for me, that brought comfort to me as I read this and as I studied and prayed this week. Because how many of us, how many times haven't I had strong convictions that I've walked in that in the end have proved to be wrong? But God has still used me. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> God still used you. We don't understand. None of us understand things perfectly. We don't have perfect revelation. We walk by the Spirit as He shows us and He, he, he takes us forward. But our views can change as God brings deep and deeper revelation and He still uses us in spite of our imperfection. That encourages me. Trust it encourages you. The last thing I wanted to say by way of introduction is that James wrote this letter without having time to think through what Paul was busy writing, okay? I already said, this. most scholars would say this letter was written between AD 40, AD 48. James, in fact, was killed in AD 61. And uh, Paul was getting exceedingly great revelation in the deserts in Arabia. He went there for 17 years after his conversion, and he gets exceedingly great revelation. He, he, he gets a supernatural revelation from God, how this gospel comes together, and what it in fact means for the Gentiles. And then he begins to write about that. But remember, we are living in the first two or three, we are 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died. There's no technology. They wrote letters. Letters took time to get to the churches. And then they had to be copied. And they had to be, make sure that they were correctly copied. And then they were dis distributed a little bit further. And it took time for people to read and digest. Remember, we've got the whole of the New Testament. All they had, all they had were the, the Old Testament books. And perhaps they had James's letter. That's perhaps what they had, the early church. Yeah? That's all they had. We have instant access now to everything. <laughs> and we can read everything in the canon and enjoy it. And God brings revelation. Remember, they didn't have that. And I think that God allowed that. If James had written his letter 10 or 15 years after Paul had started writing, perhaps he would have seen things differently and perhaps he would have written some things differently in this book. But he didn't. I believe the sovereign hand of God is upon that. I believe God wanted it like that because he wanted to show us something in the writing of James. The question is then, does this book, which seems to be quite Jewish, does this in any way oppose the gospel? Does it contradict in any way the teachings of Paul, which much of our understanding in Romans, Galatians, etc., is, uh, is centered around? Does it oppose the teaching of Paul? The answer is absolutely no. And that's the genius of the letter of James. And I hope we will begin to discover that as we go forward. But for me, what is truly fascinating, it's like God allowed a little window, a little window into somebody's mind, a Jew who was beginning to understand something of the gospel, and he allowed him to write that down faithfully so that we could now look back and see an embryonic understanding of the Christian faith beginning to take root. That's why I believe God allowed James to exist right as it is now. Just remember too, we look back post-Reformation, don't we? We look back not only with, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, but through people like Luther and Calvin and, and other great men who have understood something of Romans and Galatians. We inherit that understanding and we look back perfectly and we see everything in perspective because of other people's revelation that, that, that they have brought and un unpacked from the Scripture. Remember James, when he was writing, he had none of that. The early Christians, they had none of that. So I want to encourage you that we don't look down upon this book. We don't despise this book. You know, Luther, Luther said it was an epistle of straw. And what really offended him was, um, 
was James chapter 2, verse 14, which still offends people today. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And for many people, that means that uh, they understand by that, that unless you are doing stuff, you're not saved. Yeah? And it was, as R.T. pointed out so wonderfully, the hymn, the hymn there is not talking about someone who is or isn't saved. The hymn there relates back to verse 6, which is the poor man. It says, how can a poor man know about the gospel unless you do something? How can anything, how can he be saved unless you preach? And we're going to look at that. But Luther was offended by that verse because he thought it was preaching that we had to do stuff to be saved. And he had a revelation out of Galatians. No, it's by faith that we are saved. Apart from works. That's what I believe. So that can be confusing to some, but don't let that get in the way as we go forward because we will look at that in detail. And I'm so glad that, you know, James says some things that no other, no other writers in the New Testament say. And uh, even on that basis, it's a, it's a fantastic, wonderful spiritual book. For example, can I point you to a little statement in James chapter 1, verse 26? If anyone thinks he's religious and does not control his tongue, he deceives his heart. That person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. No, way, no one else says that. Now what about James 3.13? Who is wise and understanding amongst you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What about this? I quote this all the time. James 4.6. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's encouraging, isn't it? Or what about uh, James 5.16? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Amen? Prayer of a righteous man availeth much, some of the other translations say. I'm so glad that James said all that stuff. I'm so, th- I'm so glad that we can read it and be encouraged by it and be challenged by it. And if James didn't, wasn't obedient to what God said to him, we wouldn't have it today. I'm grateful for that part of his word. So in summary then, this letter is written to discouraged people, a backslidden people, a scattered people all over the Mediterranean. And it's written to encourage people and call them to a dazzling Christianity. And I want to call you to a dazzling Christianity, a supernatural Christianity. That is not possible apart from the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It is not by might, it's not by power, it's not by intellect, it's by the Spirit. And I believe that's God's word to us. It's by the Spirit that these things happen. It's by the Spirit that these things come. One last little interesting fact, which I find tragic and fascinating at the same time. There's a famous Jewish historian, Jewish historian called Josephus, and he documented much of Jewish history, and he tells that in AD 61, James the Just, this James, was martyred and killed for his faith. What I find tragic is this. He was not killed by the Romans. He was not killed by the Gentiles. He was not killed by the Greeks. He was killed by Ananias, the high priest, for breaking the law. Isn't that tragic? This man who gave his life to try to be a connection between the Jewish people and the new thing that God was doing through the gospel, the connector, the one, the the conciliatory person, the one who was trying to hold the two tensions together was killed by the Jews. Tragic. What I felt God just said to me is that once you take a stand for Jesus, once you take a stand for the gospel, however you try and please your enemies, those that oppose you, once there's hostility in the heart, <laughs> they'll always be hostile towards you. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive in this culture in which we live. The gospel is offensive to a middle-class mindset. And we're going to look about that little in a while. And for me, as I was just reflecting upon that this week, isn't it amazing that James starts his letter by saying, consider it pure joy when you fall into trials. And he ends up being slaughtered by the very people he was trying to help. 
There's some deep, profound truths in this book. And I trust we're going to discover them together. They've got great implications for our lives, even if we don't see them at first. So I really trust that you're going to find this series encouraging, that we can live dazzling Christian lives. Amen? Not by our own understanding, but by the Spirit of God in us. And so let's look at the second verse. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I believe, you know, I've been fascinated in the last two or three years just trying to understand in my own life how to live a godly life apart from the law, how to live a godly life apart from moralism, apart from telling people what to do, uh, discovering what it means to walk by the Spirit. And I believe that this is, this, is, this is a manual for godliness, this book of James. This is an invitation to us to walk by the Spirit. Remember I said it's written, this letter is written to the respectable backsliders. It's written to save people who have, are in a poor spiritual state. It's written to save people that are upright, but they have bad attitudes. And their bad attitudes are reflected in how they treat other people, how they talk, practice discrimination, etc., And the first thing I want to say, and I've just got three points this morning. I believe the first thing that God wants to do, and He's trying to tell us in the first couple of verses of James, is to establish patience as a habit in our lives. To establish patience as a habit. The central theme for me in those first couple of verses is in verse 4. And various translations say it differently, but it's, let steadfastness, let patience have its full effect in you so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How many of you want to be in a place in your lives where you can say you are mature and lacking nothing? I want to get to a place like that in my life where I am constant, not tossed this way and that, not up and down. Because there's a maturity that God has rooted me in, in the gospel. All right? And the underlying theme in James for me, is that God wants to produce that kind of patience in us. He wants us to live that kind of dazzling life that supersedes the the circumstances of our lives, that enables us to sing, even when we feel like we're behind bars, even when our business is is not going well, even when we have been maligned by others, even when the economy has been thrust upon us, that has thrown us into a recession, even in that we can live a life that is filled with joy. That is supernatural. That doesn't come by cleverness. That's not, that's not stoicism, you know, the, the, the kind of classic keep your stiff upper lip, the kind of classic English attitude. It is not that. When you're keeping a stuff, stuff, when you're keeping a stiff upper lip, you don't sing. You just grit your teeth and get through it. It's not the same. Grace of God changes everything. The gospel changes everything. And that's what James says in chapter 5. He comes back to this theme of patience. He says this in verse 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I know it's tough, but hang in there. Establish patience in your heart. James 5.10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's an amazing grace that God wants to release in our lives as we persevere, as we are patient. You know, God has given me one word in the last three years. There was a guy who came to this church, called me up, and he said, uh, some of you weren't even around then, he said, God says to you, gird up, the sword of your, gird up the sword on your side, and when you have done all things, stand. I just said to Helen in the kitchen this morning, you know what, I finally, I got it. God's just said to, been saying to me over and over and over, be patient, be patient, be patient, endure all, persevere, be patient, be patient, be patient. I'm beginning to get it. It's taken three or four years. Be patient. Yeah? Thank you that God's patient. <laughs> yeah. And this patience that James is talking about is so practical. 
Hyponema, hypo, I can't never get it. Hypomony is the Greek word, hypomony. And it's translated patience. In some translations, it's translated perseverance in the NIV. And for me, it means when we persevere, we are establishing patience as a habit in our lives. That's what it means to be patient, is to have, I mean to persevere, is to have a habit of being patient. <laughs> then we are persevering when we have a habit of being patient. Of being patient. You know what I find fascinating is that James, when he starts, he gets past his greeting. He doesn't say to the people, be patient. He doesn't say to those that he's writing to, don't have anything to do with the world. Um, pray more often. He does say some of those things later in the letter, but if he started at that place, it would simply be moralizing to them and saying, you must be like this. That's moralizing. That's not the language of the gospel. The language of the gospel is always an invitation to you and I. It's always invitational. I loved what Eaton, Michael Eaton said. He said, there's a warm logic to the gospel. It's not a cold logic of moralism. Just do this, just do this. Just do. No, there's a warm logic in the gospel. It's an invitation to you and I to come on a journey with God. It, it is always that. It's an invitation to walk by the Spirit. It's not a cold logic of moralism. And even he starts and he says, consider it. It's invitational. Consider it. Think about it. Consider, about, consider this, my joy, my brothers. Consider it pure joy when you have trials of many kinds. He's inviting us to establish a habit of patience in our lives when things are tough. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm paraphrasing, I know it's tough, but hang in there. That's what James is saying over and over and over again. You know, you can tell someone, be patient, but unless that is a habit for them, it's not a reality, is it? And that's what I feel like God is calling us to as a community of believers. I believe he's saying this. He's saying, I want you so to establish some things in your life that they become unconscious habits. You're not even aware that you're doing it. Like in Matthew uh, 25, where it says, um, the the, the disciples respond and say to Jesus, Lord, when did did we do this for you? When did we care for you? When did we we feed you? And it's like they weren't even aware that they were doing it. It was just the habit of their lives. They they gave to the poor and, and they were reaching out to others. It was just an unconscious way of living. That's the kind of dazzling Christianity God wants to call us all into. It's not happy-go-lucky Christianity. It's not, I'll give Christianity a go, I'll just see if it works. It's not that kind of Christianity. It's, it's, it's a, a Christianity that we read of in the great heroes of the faith. It's Christianity that we read of in the great saints that have gone before us. This is dazzling Christianity. And so, the first thing that James says to Respectable backsliders like you and I. He says, the help that you need is summed up in some little words. The help that I need is summed up in very few little words. Consider it pure joy. (laughs) I wish he'd said something else. I I really do wish he had said something else, but he doesn't. He says, I'm going to help you. This is I'm going to help you, all of you, and helping me. This is what I want to say to you. Consider it pure joy. (laughs) second thing I want to say to you this morning I believe that trials are the best means of grace in our lives now if you don't have a theology of suffering you're going to be offended by what I say right now okay (laughs) I believe in the grace of God I believe the gospel I I believe God is sovereign over all things I believe he he calls us he knows us by name I believe he, he, he puts us into times and places where we should live I believe Everything is under the sovereign hand of God. And everything means that suffering is part of the deal. And here, God allows trials in our lives because they are the best means of grace to us. That we can learn to grow in grace when trials come, when difficulties come. We can learn to respond differently and either see the supernatural life of God released in us or we can moan and groan and shake a fist of God and say, how could you let this happen to me? I'm your son. Well, maybe God doesn't see things 
right from our perspective. You know what I found in my life is that when I'm in trouble, you know what it does? It compels me to get on my knees. <laughs> when I'm in trouble, it's amazing. As people get more and more rich and they get more and more successful in business, how little they need God anymore. Have you ever noticed that in the life of the church? It's like when people start to get successful, then suddenly they don't need God so much anymore. Why? Because everything else, they have money, they have time, they can go and do different stuff. It's when people are in trouble that they get on their knees. <laughs> Troubles compel us back to our knees. Troubles get us on our knees. Troubles get us saying, God, I need you every day of my life. So, can I just say that I believe how we respond in times of trouble will affect how much we grow spiritually and how we grow spiritually. Another, another portion that some people don't like in the church, Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines those that he loves. He disciplines them as sons. Some people don't like the word discipline, so they prefer to translate it, God trains you. Well, I want to say, whether you say training or discipline, this is the deal, it's for every one of us. We, none of us get away without the training of God, without the discipline of God in our lives. And he does it because he loves us. He does it because he's calling us to something higher, and the something higher that he's calling us to is a walk by the Spirit. It's a heart that burns after him. We sang it this morning. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a relationship that is primary, above all. Above the Formula One. Above the endless, 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 endless weekends of cricket and rugby and whatever sporting event it is. There's always something on. Isn't there? Always something that's vying for our time. And God is saying, I want your heart. That's what I want more than anything else. <laughs> I want your heart to burn for me. Yeah. I want to get, point you to some scripture, all right? 1 Peter 4 verse 12 says, Don't be surprised when the fiery, fiery trial comes upon you, all right? The scripture constantly warns us and says, we're not going to be, escape, be able to escape trouble until Jesus comes back. So if you want to read these scriptures in your own time, I'll just give them to you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Go and read Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Go read Acts 5.41. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. 2 Corinthians 12, the first 10 verses. Philippians 1.29. All of those point to the fact that we're going to have some trouble while we're still in these unglorified bodies that are tend towards sin. We're going to have some trouble in this life. Some of it is because of our own son, sin. Some of it is just simply things that come upon us and we have to deal with them. But whatever happens, we're going to have some fiery trials. <laughs> I've tried to say already, but trials shake us, don't they? They shake us out of our complacency, out of our love for the world. <laughs> they help us to discover that we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need Spirit. And we start to see ourselves more clearly that we are broken and we are fallible and we make mistakes and, and it starts to bring some perspective into our lives. But I have found this and I, I want to say this gently. I think there's a malady, there's a great sickness in the church in the Western world. I think it's the most serious thing that the church is facing. And it's simply this, that there's a theology that's come to the church that God is my big sugar daddy in heaven. That all that God wants to do is to bless me. And to heal me. And of course these things are all true. And unless those things happen, I don't have enough faith. That is a sickness. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel I believe. I don't believe it's the gospel that Paul believed. It's not a gospel that James believed. Does God want to bless us? Yes. Does God want to heal us? Yes, he does. Is it the most important thing that he wants for us? I think the most important thing that he wants for us is that we become more and more like Jesus. That's the most important thing that he has for us. The greatest joy in our lives is to grow in the grace of God. You know, I, I felt just to throw this out there. If that is really our theology that we believe that actually God just wants to bless us, what do we do with Hebrews chapter 11? What do we do? Should we just rip it out? 
Should I just, there it is. There you go. Hebrews chapter 11. Don't, I, don't, I don't agree with it. It doesn't suit my theology. It's gone. So what other portions should we tear out? Things that we don't agree with. Those great men of faith, what do we do with that? It says some of them were sworn in two. It says some of them were killed by the lions. It says some of them were, were drowned. Some of them were beaten. Some of them endured great affliction for the sake of the gospel, and none of them received what they'd been promised. Yet God sees them as righteous. What do we do with that? What do we do if we're going to preach that kind of gospel? What do we do about the millions of people in China that right now are being persecuted for their faith? What about those in Pakistan and the Middle East and maybe even some in the UK that are being persecuted? I met a woman the other day who, who um, has not seen her family for 15 years because she was a Muslim that converted to Christianity here in the UK and her family have completely disowned her. What do we do when we say that suffering is not part of our little package? What do we do with that? What do we say? Okay, to all the, all the persecuted Christians in China, well, actually, you just don't have enough faith. You know, God just wants to bless you. Change your theology, and God will bless you. He'll pour out blessings upon your life. What do we, my friends, it's nonsense. It is not the gospel. It's the gospel of the middle class. That's what it is. The gospel of the middle class says, God wants to give me a bigger house, make me more wealthy. That's the gospel of the middle class. Is it the gospel of the Bible? Hey, <laughs> I'm actually, I trust you're not feeling beaten up on, all right? Because I'm not trying to beat up you. I'm just, I'm just trying to share my heart. This is what I believe. So five little things that I think trials help us with. I've said this already. Hey, wonderful opportunities for spiritual growth. That's the first thing. You know, when we go through trouble, it's not always the, always the result of sin. Sometimes it is, but not always. And um, I found this fascinating. How's this for, this is a curveball. Uh, go, go with me to 2 Corinthians, if it's still in my Bible. <laughs> 2 Corinthians, um, chapter 12. This is fascinating. Do you know that you can be, God can actually discipline you for something that you haven't even done yet? How fair is that? How gracious is that? That's what Paul says about himself. Remember, I talked to you uh, just now and said that he, he, he'd come back from the desert with these exceedingly great revelations. Look what he says here in, the, in verse 12. I must go on boasting, so, sorry, chapter 12. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to vision and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether it was in his body or out of his body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in his body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise. He's obviously talking about himself. I heard, he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except in my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a, I would, would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now look at verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited. Yeah, he hasn't even done it yet. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. <laughs> Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. You can be disciplined or trained like Paul was. He hadn't even yet become conceited. He was so aware of it, and yet God sends something, allows something in his life so that he, so he doesn't get conceited. The second thing I want to say is that trials are brought, can be brought by the devil, but ultimately are under the God, sovereign hand of God. All of us have asked uh, this question sometimes in our, sometime in our life when we're experiencing trouble. Where does it come from, God or the devil? Well, we're only scratching the surface today, and I trust over the next couple of months we'll explore these things more deeply. But go and read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. The devil sends trials because he hates you, 
<laughs> That's what happens. The devil sends trials because he hates you, and God sends tr- allows trials because he loves you. <laughs> the devil wants to do you harm and kill you, and God allows trials to strengthen you and ultimately to bring life to you. But we will look at that in more detail in the months to come. Thirdly, I want to say trials, they usually come at the worst possible time and simultaneously at the best possible time. (laughs) It's like trials impose themselves on our lives. Uh, We fall into them. I'm using that word in purpose. We're going to have a look at it just now. We can look at... If you go and read Job's story, it's like one thing comes at him after another. And it's like all the time his friends are saying, oh, you know, it's God's fault and God is punishing you. And in the midst of all of that, his heart is pure and he says, "Uh uh-uh, it's not God. God has allowed it, but he's kind of coming to some deep truth in his life. At worst, when we experience trials, when we go through difficult things, we, we say, it's the devil's hand. How we can see the unfairness of it, how, how evil it is, how devious it is, how clever it is, how misleading it is. Yet with every attack that comes in our lives, we can simultaneously say at the same time we can see the mercy of God because we can look back and say, well, if that had to happen, at least it happened in that way. And we can see the mercy of God all the time. These things both at the same time. The fourth thing I want to say, and this is for me has become a reality in my life, is that trials are, not, are never beyond our ability to cope. They're never beyond our ability to cope. They will end. Trials will end. For those of you that are going through trials right now, I want to tell you they will end. Temptation, does temptation end? No, it doesn't. Temptation is constant because we are always tempted by the devil. We are always tempted by the flesh. We live with it constantly. It's an ongoing thing in our lives as we put to death the flesh in us, as Paul says. But trials... They have a beginning point and they have an end point. And you fall into trial and you don't know why it happened and you find yourself going through this difficult time and suddenly it ends just like that and you know that it's ended and you've done nothing. God has just ended it like that. I want to say to you, this is a verse for me that I believe all of us must take into our hearts and believe with passion. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: No temptation, no trial, that's the unfortunate thing. I just want to say this in passing, that sometimes some translations um, uh, translate trial, sometimes they translate temptation, and sometimes they're one, sometimes they're other, and it can be confusing when you're reading the Scripture. But here, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the trial He will also provide a way of escape so that you might be able to endure it. Trials come to an end. I was reading a book that R.T. wrote, and he said an amazing phrase. He said, all trials are filtered through the throne of grace and come by God's permission. I love that. Sovereign hand of God is under everything. And God imparts enough strength and grace for us to walk through the trials. Fifthly, trials tempt you to give in. This has been a reality for me. Trials tempt you to give in. As we walk through difficult things, there's an overwhelming pressure, there's an overwhelming temptation just to give in, just to throw in the towel and say, okay, I've had enough. And there's always that little thing that the devil puts in your mind. And he says, he says this, he says, this thing, this one specifically, you've endured many others, but this thing you don't have the strength to walk through. I mean, I've, I've really experienced that in the last number of years. This thing, this specific, it's like for this thing, you just think, God, I can see that I have, you've given me grace for many other things, but I just, for this thing, I don't feel like there's grace in my life. I'd just rather give in. <laughs> well, I want to encourage you. If you're feeling the temptation to throw in the, tri- the, the, the towel right now, maybe you're going something in, through something in your life, I want to encourage you that God wants to release a blessing to you in your life that is only going to be experienced through the thing that you're going through. There is blessing that will come out of it. There is. That's why James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. James knew these things. He didn't want his readers to miss the opportunity, to misinterpret the trials that they were going through, and to miss the blessing that can be afforded through those trials. 
And so he says, we can, tr- we can uh, count every trial a basis for rejoicing. And I do want to say this. I'm not talking about some kind of superficial, like, glory, hallelujah. I mean, when, 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 uh, when uh, Petri shared his story about his car breaking down, when your car breaks down, it's just simply unreal to say, thank you, God, my car's broken down. I'm rejoicing in this trial. That's madness. That's nonsense. Of course you don't rejoice in it, in that sense. But when you count it joy, you know by faith, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those that are called according to His purpose. And you know, under the sovereign hand of God, there's a security that comes because you know that this thing is not taking away from God's plan for your life. That His plan is still going to be seen in your life. And therefore, you can can count all things with joy because you know God still has His purpose for your life. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe you've been maligned at work. Maybe you've been sick for a long time. Maybe I even wrote you, your car breaks down. Not some kind of superficial glory, hallelujah, I'm so blessed, I'm so blessed. No, he's not talking about that. Not that kind of joy. I loved what R.T. said. He said, God calls us to dignify the trial. To dignify the trial. By acknowledging everything that we go through is under the sovereign hand of God. I don't know how it's possible to live your life without a high view of the sovereignty of God. Man, it must be incredibly hard. Always guessing if bad things happen, oh, God doesn't love me. I've done something wrong. I need to repent. Well, perhaps there are some things we need to repent of, but everything is under the sovereign hand of God. He allows us to move, to fall into trials. trials. And um, the Greek word there used um, in that sentence is peripipto. I was teasing the kids in the car this morning. Peripipto. And that means to fall into something that you're not expecting. That's why I kept saying we fall into trials. It's peripipto. That's the word. It's used also in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 verse 30 where Jesus says there was a man from Jerusalem and he peripipto. He, he, fell, into, he fell into a company of thieves. He wasn't planning for it to happen. He just fell in where there were thieves. All right? It's also used where Paul uh, in Acts 27 he's getting shipwrecked and it says, it says that the ship fell into a certain place. It's peripipto. Peripipto. It's, it's, it's like it just happened. So what I'm trying to say is you don't go looking for trials. No. When Jesus, when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc., etc. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You do everything that you can to avoid trials. And this is not kind of some kind of sick sort of looking for pain in your life. I'm not talking about that at all. Deliver us, God. We don't want to go through trials. Paul encourages us in Romans 13. He says, don't give any room for your flesh. Don't put it to death. You don't want to walk into trials that are unnecessary. Avoid them at all costs. Yeah. Last thing. James says trials of various kinds, various kinds. And uh, it's the same kind of root word, God's manifold wisdom. It means multifaceted, it means various, it means variegated, it means diverse. What does it simply mean for you and I? That the devil is going to try and tack us from one angle after the other. Diverse trials, not the same for me, not the same for you. We all have our things that God allows to happen, that we can find grace in our time of need. And uh, I found it quite difficult when um, R.T. said, if you're going through a time of trial, congratulations. God has chosen you. I was like, I don't want congratulations. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Count it all joy. But it is. It's a compliment because it is. It's, saying God, it's, it's God saying, my, my son... You've stood in that area, and the devil's going to come and try you in another area, and, and actually, I believe in you. You can stand. I've given you grace. It's an amazing compliment from God. I know it's tough, but hang in there. Hang in there. And James says, counted all joy, and I've said this already, and I conclude with this. I feel that James says that because the one success in life that really counts is growing in the grace of God. That is the ultimate joy for you and I, is to grow in the grace of God. And all other joys 
flow out of that single joy. That is the highest thing that we can, that we can walk in. It's growing in the grace of God. The Scripture says it over and over in different ways. Being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Becoming more like Jesus. Growing up into the head. All that is talking about is growing in the grace of God in our lives. I conclude with this. I believe that every trial gives us opportunity to meet it with dignity. It gives us opportunity to meet it with grace. It gives us opportunity to meet it with joy so that we can store up for ourselves in heaven, heavenly treasure. How many of you are concerned for your retirement? Uh, I have been, and I felt God speak to me this week. Anyone concerned for your retirement? Of storing up enough for yourself in your retirement? I felt God say this to me this week as I was reading this. He said, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. That is a good investment for your retirement. God said that to me yesterday. That is a wise investment for your retirement. It's to store up treasure for yourself right now. Treasure not on this earth, but in heaven. Because I'm going to a place where I'm going to spend all eternity with him. I want to store up some treasure there. Yeah? It's a good way. And James said the way that we start to store up treasure for ourselves is that we start to dignify trials in our lives, that we start to respond to them with grace. We start to respond to them with faith. We see that God, His sovereign hand is under all, and He's allowing us because He's he's determined that we'll become more and more like Jesus to dignify the trial. And then we can count it all joy. Store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. The dividends will get paid out as we get older. (laughs) And ultimately, the full dividend we'll receive when we are in glory one day with Jesus. My friends, I believe this is a call from God for us as a believing community to start living a dazzling Christianity. And I don't mean that in a kind of show-offy kind of way. I mean that simply as the Spirit transforms us from the inside out and we become more and more like Jesus and we learn to walk with Him and we value what He values and we want to see the kingdom come in us and through us and we are transformed and nothing gets us down, that we too, like Paul and Silas, when we're in the, in the jail, we can sing behind the bars because there's something that is enabling us to sing. The grace of God. Amen? And we pray. Father, I want to thank you for your words. I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your favor. I want to thank you, Lord, for your hand on our lives. And Lord, we don't understand all things, but we simply know this, that you are sovereign. We know that ultimately everything we experience is under the sovereign hand of God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have soft hearts that would respond to you quickly, that we would not have to go through unnecessary times of trial. But we know at the same time, Lord, that there are some things that we simply fall into that we've had nothing to do with. I pray when we, get, when we are faced by situations like that, that you'd give us grace that is sufficient for that trial that you'd give us faith that we're able to see you in it. I speak over this church, Father, the truth of your word that we can promise each and every one of us. All things work together for good for those that are called and love you and are called according to your purpose. I speak it over every single family in this church. It is true. It is your promise. All things work together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, there's a mystery in that that we don't even understand. But I thank you for it. I trust you that you would root us in these things. And as we go forward into the next couple of months, that truly we would start to shine with a dazzling faith that is infectious, that truly is salt and light to this world, that would cause thirsty people to come and to ask, what is it that is bringing us such joy? And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.